everybody listening on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, wherever you get your shows. This is On the Farm, a podcast dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm your host, Matt Kovitz, and it has been a very busy week, to say the least. Joining me, as always, is my excellent colleague, Sam Shapiro. How are you, Sam? And you have the chance to answer honestly and earnestly. Well, Matt, it's been a ridiculous past few days, and so, like, Many people, I'm still processing what the fuck happened on Wednesday the 6th. On the one hand, I'm grateful to be able to be joining you today to talk about something that we both uh, love and enjoy um, as a bit of an escape. But on the other hand, you know, this has been this has been too bizarre for words, honestly. We will move toward the baseball side of things because there were a lot of stories to talk about there as well. But we do have to unfortunately start with another obituary. Tommy Lasorda, the Hall of Fame manager with the Los Angeles Dodgers, passed away at the age of 93 on Thursday night. The skipper of that team from 1977 to 1996 came in and immediately brought success to Los Angeles. They had back-to-back pennants, won the World Series in 1981 and 1988. A legend in Dodger blue, a legend in California. This entire family is going to miss him out there. Yeah, incredibly sad news. And I think, especially in this day and age, it's very rare to have figures in the game, whether they be players or managers or your coaches or other personnel, just have their entire identity associated with one sole franchise. Um, And I think that Tom Lasorda probably was uh, was the last of a dying breed in terms of people where we can say, oh, that guy. He is the Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, he bleeds, you know, Dodger blue and nothing else. And, you know, obviously a very, uh, very gifted baseball man. You know, you don't have that kind of uh, success on the field without some sort of, you know, preternatural understanding of how to how to set a lineup, how to motivate your players, how to, you know, work the strategy during the game in terms of, you know, pinch hitting, pinch running. I think he was probably a little before the shift, so I can't throw that in there. But, you know, really one of the greats. And uh, he'll be he'll be missed dearly. The tributes have been rolling in from everybody around the game. Rest in peace, time in Lasorda. Now on to the field. There was a blockbuster trade alert. So I'm already, I have heightened senses. Some might call it sensory overload to begin with, with the news that comes out on Wednesday. Then I find out I'm working, I'm doing my thing. I see this major trade that I didn't expect in a million years. And like 14 different people started texting about it. I went to Twitter. It was true. The Mets acquiring Francisco Lindor for a pair of prospects and a pair of major league players. And if that wasn't enough, they're getting Carlos Carrasco as well. Lindor, Carrasco, Romed Rosario, Andres Jimenez, Josh Wolf, and Isaiah Green. This is Steve Cohen making a Cohen caliber move. It was something that he promised. Though this was a bit unexpected, I would have much thought that the free agent market would be where he was going. And by all means, he's not done yet. A blockbuster trade, not exactly where I thought he'd get his first superstar deal. Yeah, uh, like you said, Matt, the scuttlebutt surrounding the Mets' offseason, it's, it's been three guys. It's been DJ LeMayu, it's been George Springer, and it's been Trevor Bauer. And so, you know, everyone was expecting, uh, you know, with Steve Cohen coming in, they're going to be spending top dollar in that area. Um, but this just goes to show that uh, he's covering all his bases. and. Um, well, I think that, uh, obviously, you know, Jared Porter's the new GM, you know, he's the one, you know, at the head of the table for this. I have to imagine Steve Cohen is involved in decisions like this to a certain degree, more so, uh, than your typical owner. Who's just, you know, bankrolling the whole thing and, and, and sitting back in the luxury box. I think that this is, this is just exciting for the Mets period. David Wright, the face of that franchise for over 10 years, 
Uh, unfortunately, you know, the injuries kind of, you know, lessened his, uh, his, his, his impact towards the end, but he has been searching, has been yearning for a star player, for someone who can be the leader of this team. And obviously Conforto uh, has improved, you know, to become a solid major leaguer, but he was never going to be that guy. And they have him here in Lindor. So I think that having someone who you can market to the extent you can with Lindor, you know, contending for the all-star game every year, obviously, you know, it's tough to, you know, peg people as, you know, MVP candidates, given how high of a bar that is, but, you know, someone with that kind of ceiling, should he get back to kind of his peak in Cleveland? Obviously, you did give up quite a bit there. Um, the two middle infielders who were for quite some time going to be the future uh, double play combo for the Mets. But to me, I think it was 100% worth it. Oh, without a doubt, especially since the reports are that Lindor is going to stick around long term. A la Mookie Beth, they're going to get a deal. I know it's his walk year in 2021. He's a guy who can command well over $200 million. And the Mets are going to be the team that more than likely gives it to him. Carrasco is no slouch either. Aside from a rough early start to his career and a 2019 season that was brought down due to him suffering an illness, he's had an ERA under three since around 2014. You're getting a sure thing. He may be up there in age, but this is a guy who could anchor the middle of the rotation and be healthy in the process. Yeah, I have to say, it's just miraculous to see uh, the recovery Carrasco made, not just any illness, uh, diagnosed with and treated for leukemia in 2019. And then uh, 2020, his first full, uh, well, not full season, his first you know extended stretch back of the majors, he yeah, he ends with a sub three ERA. And, you know, he's been in the, in the major leagues for more than 10 years. So to have, you know, that kind of you know, strain on your arm to put your body through the gauntlet that is cancer treatment, and then to, you know, come out on the other side and, you know, just do such an outstanding job. It'll be really, really fun to watch him slot in uh, behind DeGrom, I think that you, you you can you can put him ahead of Strowman, arguably, just in terms of wanting a little bit more consistency out of the number two guy. And then Noah Syndergaard, when he returns, is the four starter, which is so overpowered because he's not the typical four. He could be much better than that. His ceiling is 2016. And although that was five years ago at this point, we know what he can get to. Now, my question for you here, where does Cleveland go from here? We knew they weren't going to keep Lindor, but losing Cookie certainly hurts. He was a franchise icon, and these fans are gutted, at least if you look on social media. Right now, their payroll is currently around $34 million, with Jose Ramirez commandeering about 25% of that. They say the extra money saved will be reinvested into the roster, but I don't know if you can 100% trust them on that one. The return is a starting middle infield combination. Jimenez looks solid. Rosario is still young. They're not Francisco Lindor. And the two prospects they got could be great, could be totally fine. But that's a move the Mets had to make. And above all else, they didn't get a major league outfielder, which I thought would be the basis of a deal. Brandon Nimmo, J.D. Davis, not even going to be involved. Yeah, unfortunately, it looks like the Indians are starting to just burn the whole thing down. They they must feel that their window for uh, you know consistent uh, contention has passed. And well... We do joke here about the Comedy Central and how competitive that division is year in and year out. Uh, you know, the White Sox are really starting to amass young talent. The Twins have had consistent, uh, strong performances the past few years with Rocco Baldelli uh, being a really uh, underrated and savvy manager there. You got Kansas City with their with their arms coming up. Detroit, you know, Torkelson looks poised to make an impact very quickly. Perhaps the Indians just feel like everyone else is, is catching up to them and, you know, maybe even it, lapping them. And so, you know, as much as, as much as I hate to see it because they've had a really nice run during the teens, 
this looks like it's their it's their big rebuild. Uh, now, I will say that in, ter- in terms of the return, Isaiah Green is someone that we talked about uh, quite a bit on our on our Mets special or NLE special when we were talking about the Mets. Absolutely rave reviews at, at the at the alternate site for a high school draftee from 2020. Uh, and so I, I have to imagine he is. Even at his young age, their center field of the future. They only have one outfielder in the top 10. The Indians do George Valera. He's going to be a corner outfielder if he makes the major leagues. And just the absolute uh, lack of any passable option uh, in center field, not just in the majors, but in the upper minors too. I mean, you know, they may even have to count on a guy like, you know, Stephen Kwan to come in and, you know, eat some innings there next year. When Whereas you know, he was a decently high draft pick, you know, he's had a decent performance in the upper minors. Uh, there's no one who they can count on and say, this guy is a surefire long-term solution in center field. And so if I'm an Indians fan, I think the one thing I'm trying to salvage from this deal is, you know, Green has a lot riding on his shoulders and, you know, he could be a key cornerstone to this franchise if he pans out. That said... He's only 18, 19 years old. And so one still has to be careful with putting too much in terms of expectations on his shoulders. I don't see how you feel anything but disappointment if you're a Cleveland fan. Yes, the Central is getting better. Their pitching is good enough to keep them around the fringes of the wildcard race, though. So maybe they try to retool on the fly. Are there going to be other moves that come out of this? Roberto Perez, even with a shot, Jose Ramirez, both on two pretty team-friendly deals? I think just from a Doomer perspective, they would shop Jose Ramirez because it looks like they're just, they're trying to shed salary, overhaul the lineup. And just, as I said, you know, tear everything down to the ground. That's the vibe I'm getting from this Indians team. And so it would not shock me to see any veteran player uh, traded. Obviously I think Josh Naylor's probably off limits in certain, in terms of some of their younger pitchers, you know, play sack looks like he wrote out the storm uh, after his, you know, little COVID, uh, Bruhaha. And obviously, obviously Shane Bieber's not going anywhere. Shane Bieber's not going anywhere. I don't think Tristan McKenzie's going anywhere either. So they're 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 gonna keep the very young and you know exciting uh players currently on their major league roster, but the Roberto Perez's, the Jose Ramirez's, anyone else they think they can extract value from, I think they're going to be they're gonna be just going out and doing their thing. Now as Cleveland tears down, Detroit trying to build up slowly but surely. Signed an interesting free agent over the week. Robbie Grossman getting a two-year, $10 million contract. This comes on the heels of something I showed you uh, a few weeks ago on the Fangraph Zips projections. Each player gets a, a number assigned for their wins of a replacement, what the computer believes they're going to be worth. Christian Stewart, over 550 plate appearances, was projected for less than one win above replacement. So I understand why they rushed and gave Grossman a multi-year deal. That's just awful. And honestly, good for Grossman. He was outrighted off the roster as recently as 2016. I believe that was with the Twins, really reinvented himself in Oakland, and he's gotten a multi-year guarantee, so he's got to be happy about the stability that he's found. Yeah, really a breakout year for Grossman, even though the peripherals weren't that flashy. And 826 uh, OPS, uh, that's the second highest mark of his career, um, only second to his 2016 season in Minnesota. Uh, He's been uh, a guy who... I think as long as you keep the expectations down, can more than meet a team's needs. If you're looking for a platoon option in one of the corners, can probably play a little bit of center field in an emergency. Uh, I think that with a, with, a, with a Tigers team that is looking to embrace its youth movement, uh, it's important for them to have these kind of, you know, fourth outfielder or, or, or platoon starter types who have major league ex- experience, who know what they're doing up there, but can also, you know, give you a little bit of pop with the bat and play you a solid defense. And so I, 
I think that it's a little weird to see him on a multi-year deal, but you know, hey, he got that bread. Good for him. Speaking of stability, the Dodgers were awarding Blake Trinan. He signed a one-year prove-it contract after being non-tendered by the Athletics in 2019, posted a solid showing with Los Angeles this year, and now gets a two-year $17.5 million contract. Not much else to say here. This is the exact sort of guy the Dodgers work with. Dylan Floro, Blake Trinan is now added. Broken players who have particular skills. Trinan's movement is one of them. And the hopes are he returns to his 2018 form. That might be a high water mark, but they have a solid reliever at a relatively cheap cost. Yeah, he still gave them okay innings during a championship season. Obviously, uh, we, we, we spoke about this before, Tommy Canely being added sort of to that stable. But when you're the Dodgers, when you have that kind of payroll and when you have the kind of pitching depth within your system uh, where you can pull guys like uh, Victor Garcia out of your rear ends and have them you know, contribute for you, you can take flyers on guys like Trinan. And he evidently showed them enough to get that nice contract. We saw him have some dominant runs in Oakland. So the potential, it's clearly still there. And given uh, the success the Dodgers have had, Mark Pryor uh, doing some nice work as a, as a pitching coach there, you know, I think that's, uh, I would be optimistic if I were if I were a Dodgers fan looking at Trinan. Now, last week, we talked about Haruki Nishikawa. We said we're going to hedge because as of recording, he had not been posted anywhere. We said it might not happen, but hey, there are a couple of teams interested. The Diamondbacks and Blue Jays came in mind. He's returning to Japan, and so is Tomoyuki Sugano. Posted as well, his deadline came and went. A four-year, $40 million contract to stick around with the Yumari Giants. This is interesting because that is the highest AAV deal in Japan. That is the highest total dollar amount in Japan. So he has really secured the bag. Congrats to him. I don't think he would have gotten that here. It seems like Giants fans really wanted them back. And that's where he's going to stay for at least the next four seasons. Yeah, I, this was a little disappointing to me just because I had seen the Red Sox name mentioned with him. And I've made no secret uh, of uh, my distaste for what was called our starting rotation last year. Uh, and he would have been such a, an outstanding piece to throw in there. Pair with a with a with a healthy Erod and Eovaldi towards the top of that rotation. It's it's also interesting uh, because this has been probably one of the busier off seasons in terms of you know, Japanese players you know, being posted or uh, looking to engage in negotiations with MLB teams. But it's also looking like a big season in terms of people doing what Sugano did and just you know staying put when they don't find something to their liking. Uh, Kohari Hara uh, with the Rangers. That's the only. Uh, Japanese signing we've had so far all offseason. And they're really... Is that a testament to the market? Or are they just wanting to stick around and earn more in Japan? And just they want to avoid the U.S. altogether right now, especially as free agency has been stalled. You know, that's a good question. You know, one thing that uh, I do think about quite a bit, especially since I follow professional basketball as well, is that guys tend to go wherever the money is without regard to, you know, what the situation is in there, in, in, in the countries they're being hard to play in Iran and Lebanon and, you know, places like in the middle East where there's, you know, civil unrest, you know, they'll have, you know, American players or, or Western players come in and play on their, on their professional basketball teams because, you know, they're, because they're offering the money. And, you know, the fact that, you know, things are kind of potentially uneasy in those countries that doesn't, that doesn't seem to shake people in, in the, in the basketball, basketball world. And so I would have thought that, you know, if you're a baseball player, that um, even if, you know, the United States is kind of, uh, 
you know, having a bit of a moment here that money is still money. And so, you know, I, I would have to imagine that these guys who are staying in Japan that, you know, they're just getting better deals in Japan versus wanting to, you know, just not play in America. I more so meant the major league free agent market being a bit depressed at the moment, but it's a very funny visual of the guy just landing here in like Seattle or something, seeing what's going on on TV and just be like, nope, I'm going to go back actually. <laughs> if you can imagine if like there's somehow like uh you know some guy has to like uber from the airport and they go past the state capital where there's just like a bunch of fuckheads going out doing their thing like oh what do i get myself into you know what I, get the, i'll stick around in japan yeah no and i think no what, what, what you brought up is a good point and arguably more valid because this is a weird market uh free agent wise i would be curious to hear if uh because even though uh npb and the kbo had much fuller seasons than Major League Baseball did. I would be shocked if their teams weren't hurting in some way, shape, or form due to the pandemic. And so I don't know if uh, the Japanese free agent market or the Korean free agent market is at its like full capacity or whether or not they're having like their own version of what we're seeing in the United States. Because, you know, I, I think that a, a team owner in, in uh, Tokyo, Japan... They're facing the same constraints as any major league owner who had to operate their franchise when they had when they either couldn't collect gate receipts or had you know much much curtailed capacity for fans in the stands. Uh, so that that's something I, I I'm curious to learn more about because I, I can't imagine the United States is the only place where their their sports leagues are kind of dealing with this. I'm sure we'll get some reports on that as the year goes along. Lastly, before we get into the prospect lists. The start of the minor league season is going to be delayed at the double A and single A levels. So after major league and minor league spring training finish, they're expected to start on time. Of course, the virus is the main catalyst here. That could either be correct or proven ridiculous within the matter of weeks. We don't know yet. They seem to be starting on time. After that, the younger guys aren't going to get the head start in double A and both single A levels. The difference here, they're not going to have playoff games at these levels. The schedules will run as late as October 3rd. Rather than disappointment, J.J. Cooper of Baseball America called this relief because there's finally a plan in action. These players are going to play. We just have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, this is not just great news for the players, but also for the franchises, the cities, the communities where these teams are located because with the, with the double whammy of the 2020 season being canceled and the much maligned uh, minor league contraction, a lot of these places have really been out in the lurch with true uncertainty as to whether they're going to see pro baseball again, what kind of pro baseball will, will that be? What will that look like? And there's finally some clarity there. And, you know, if it, if it's safe and if I'm, you know, vaccinated, you know, I'm going to be, Incredibly excited to be uh, to be catching some Hartford Yard Goats games this summer. Um, and I think that you know this is this is a real nice thing for the whole baseball community, uh, players, teams, fans, all to be to be looking forward to. I will be looking forward to it as well. I'm glad they get the chance. Last year they didn't even get an option, so it may take a little bit longer, but they're going to be here. The playoffs don't matter as much. The development is much more important. So. Sorry for them. They're not going to win a championship, but they'll get, they'll get, they'll get over it. And I think one thing I, I do want to hedge a little bit on is I really want to see parent clubs doing as much as they can to protect their players um, insofar as play maybe starting before, you know, they're eligible for vaccines or before like, you know, we're at our safest as uh, as a society for where we'll be during the summer. Minor league players, we don't need to elaborate here, but they've just been they've been getting screwed for so many years in terms of things like wages and benefits. Um, and I think it would just be you know really terrible for them to get the shaft uh, health wise and being kind of like rushed out 
to play again without you know making sure that adequate protections are in place. And so I know that uh, that's not an area um, I would have expected Major League Baseball to have invested heavily in. Hopefully, um, one of the silver linings of this new you know one baseball archetype where the, the parent clubs have uh, a lot of control over the affiliates is that they will be able to put some some money into this and make make sure this is safe for everyone involved. Stay tuned and keep the faith. Now, Sam, are you ready to go on the farm in the AL West? I was born ready to go on the farm in the AL West, Matt. Let's start with these uber-present and uber-annoying Houston Astros. Farm starting to wear thin a bit. Not as many guys with major league experience. Some knocking on the door, a few a couple years away. We'll start with a pair of position players. At number 10, shortstop Greg Kessinger from Ole Miss. A baseball family has the genes for success. Fundamentally sound, even if his tools aren't spectacular, we see a utility player here, or Baseball America does at least, who needs to show a sustained success against upper-level pitching. So that's not exactly a, a vote of confidence that he's going to reach that top, top form if that's his absolute ceiling. And at number nine, outfielder Colin Barber, the youngest player at Houston's camp this summer. The potential is there. The only below-average tool he has right now is the hit tool. So power, defense, arm, running, all there. I think that's, that's livable. Yeah, and the Astros, um, it's interesting looking at uh, where they're at on the corners because, you know, we talked about last week, you know, Brantley and Reddick are gone. They don't look like they're coming back. Jordan Alvarez, obviously a huge masher, but uh, he can't seem to stay healthy. Uh, Yuli Gurriel, I have to imagine he's kind of getting up in years because he was a, a late arrival to the United States. He's like 37, Cuba. 38. Jesus Christ. Yeah, Maybe so 36, I, but like he's definitely up there. The exciting thing for a guy like, Barber is that there are spots for the taking. Granted, Kyle Tucker did take steps to entrench himself in right field this year, but that really does seem to be one of the weaker spots in this Astros system. And so given the fact that he was already at the alternate training site at such a young age, uh, he could move a little bit quicker than your typical high school uh, draftee. At number seven, catcher Corey Lee. Class A in 2021, scouts are high despite the thought that the Astros may have reached on this pick. I wanted to know if you have any insight on this because it was expected that he could have fallen to the second or even the third round and they just moved up and got Lee and seemingly way higher than anybody expected. Right. I think that uh, the arm is obviously very tantalizing. With, with the Astros having trotted Martin Maldonado out for uh, a considerable portion of the past few years, uh, they're not looking for uh, you know an all-star at the plate. Uh, it seems like they're really kind of prioritizing defense. And I think that uh, you know, they obviously liked what they saw in Corey Lee. It's not exactly easy to come across someone with... Uh, with uh, his defensive prowess could he have slipped to the to the second round possibly but you know I don't fault teams if they have their guy whom their scouts are sold on for making that move and there's really not been a lot of talent at the catching position in this organization uh, for a while so I think that uh, I think that he's their guy the draft is such a crapshoot anyway it, I don't think reaching matters as much if it's not going to be that traumatic right and especially just looking at how easy it is for not just guys in like the you know third or fourth round to break out as prospects uh, even though we're not getting a ton of them in these lists we're going over like it is very much possible for a guy from the mid to late rounds to just grind his way through the minors and come up and have have had himself a major league career so it's it's not the end all be all we're going to go through a quintet of pitchers right now, starting at number eight, Hunter Brown, fifth round pick from Wayne State, a division two alert here, folks. Excellent stuff. The control does not exist. Multi-inning reliever is likely where he ends up, but they're going to give him the chance of being a multi-inning guy. That control issue is something that you're going to hear a lot in these reports. For whatever reason, I'm going to ask you about it later. That seems to be the case in Houston's organization. At number six, 
Tyler Ivy from Grayson Community College in Texas. Another, not a baseball hotbed, another place where you wouldn't expect a guy to be on this list. He's a funky delivery, but added durability risk. So that's not fun. 60 grade curveball with his help, though. He'll get another bunch of chances to prove himself. Could be another multi-inning guy. Circling back to Brown, uh, one thing that um, kind of gives me a little bit of pause is that obviously his velocity improved to the point where it was in the it was in the mid nineties when he was drafted, but his range is listed as ninety two to one hundred miles an hour. That's a lot of uncertainty with regards to how hard he can he can throw over over consistent units of time. Obviously, they they like they like the potential. The fastball is graded at seventy for a reason, but I'm le- I'm less sold. I really am. I think that this is this is short relief at best, honestly. The fifth guy on this list, Brian Abreu, actually made his debut this season. Yet another Astro with control problems, though. All of these guys have mid-rotation upside, but there is a tool that could hold them back. I may as well get into it now. The Astros are a team that is known, especially at the minor league level, for not giving their starters a lot of extra innings if they can help it. Well, they'll go five and then tag team with somebody who will take the remaining four innings. Do you think that strategy for as successful as it's been in the postseason, getting these guys in and out and making them sort of interchangeable, do you think there's in any way a correlation to the lack of control that is present on these lists where they're just not getting enough and they're not learning to pitch tired and things are just becoming erratic as a result? You know, it's a good question, but I'm not quite sure I see the connection. Um, to me, I think that they're drafting these guys and they're not, they're, not, they're, they're not drafting them as pitchers with solid control and it's all going to shit once they get in the Astros system and start doing this, you know, tandem tandem starting pitching thing, you know, they're, they're, they're drafting guys who, you know, are known to be a little bit wild and who don't have the best command. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at a guy like Hunter Brown, obviously he's, 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 he's a promising guy. There's potential there, but he was, uh, he was pitching in D2 for a reason, you know, a guy like Tyler Ivy, you know, he's made it this far, you know, he's a good pitcher, but he was, you know, uh, he was, he was a, a, a Juco guy for a reason. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily think that there's a causation between how the Astros are, are working these arms versus just, you know, they, they happen to be drafting guys who didn't have the best command coming in. So whether or not there are other issues with, you know, how they're, they're, they're developing their pitchers and more, you know, one-on-one instruction, maybe, but I'm just not sure I see why lightening workloads even perhaps too much is is causing these guys to to stay or to become wild it was a reach of a question i just wanted to bring the discussion up i'm sure there's not anything scientifically based in that so i'm gonna get fired by analytics twitter if anyone's ever listening matt kovitz is over party that's fine i've been over before (laughs) the final four right-handed pitcher alex santos they're First draft picks for Houston this year due to their sign-stealing penalties. That was in the supplementary section of the second round. He has some of the best potential in the entire system, but he's got a pitch first. And at number three, out of Maine, third-round pick Jeremy Pena, a shortstop, a plus defender. Even if he never reaches the field as a starter, his gloves should give him opportunities and keep him around the big leagues for a few years. Yeah, I think, uh, just circling back to Santos, um, he's a... Above average in terms of his tool grades, if everything except for his changeup, which is just a 50, which is average. Um, and so I think that uh, that kind of uh, consistent potential across multiple secondary pitches, tough to say because he's you know a recent high school graduate who hasn't pitched a pro game yet. But I have to imagine the likelihood he stays a starter is incredibly high. In terms of Pena, there have been improvements he's made 
um, in terms of his approach at the plate. He's the son of a, of, a, of a major leaguer, so he's got some good bloodlines. He grew up around the game. He's someone where I think that you know he, he'll never be a power threat, but I would not be shocked to see him as a, as, as a passable everyday shortstop with a great glove, possibly gold glove potential even. At number two, Luis Garcia, but not that Luis Garcia or that other Luis Garcia. This is the you know, I have Luis to, Garcia. I have to stop you right there. Do you remember that show? This might have been before your time. It was a show on Nickelodeon called The Brothers Garcia. No, actually, I thought you were going to go with The Adventures of Pete and Pete, but to combine, realize there were two of the similar titled, similarly titled shows. So it was like one of those uh, like teen Nick sitcoms that aired at like 6.30 on, on weekend evenings. Uh, they really need to make a reboot called the, the Brothers Luis Garcia. Just get all these Luis, all these Luises Garcia, put them in like a condo during spring training. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll let you continue with the actual baseball content. Sure. Garcia came up, looks pretty good. Swing and miss stuff. We'll get a bunch of chances in a rotation that is suddenly much younger than it used to be. Of course, Garrett Cole left a year ago. Justin Verlander's on a mend. This is uh, Lance McCullers needs to stay healthy. I don't know if he's totally trusted yet, although he looked decent in 2020. A rotation that has a lot of question marks and a lot of opportunity for guys to come up. And this one last player is the biggest wild card yet. Forrest Whitley, first round pick out of 2016. Are we done with him yet? I don't think we should be, but there have been a lot of red flags. Injuries, control problems, getting lit up, getting suspended for performance-enhancing drugs. It seems like he's running out of chances. That being said, he's only 23 years old. It, we're, getting, we're getting to a point, though. I think with him, and you hate to say this about uh, a former first-rounder with such electric stuff, cut your losses, move him to the bullpen, Try try and fashion him into like one of those like big power reliever guys. Based off of the reports we've heard from the alternate training site, he still you know knows how to pitch, but just preserve his arm, preserve his body. The clock is ticking on him. Best to get whatever value you can. Now for Houston, as I just alluded to, they're not getting any younger. The team is going to look much different. To say nothing of the target they're going to perpetually have on their backs. Where does Houston go from here? They are not as strong as they were a few years ago. But I still think they are on the fringes of the playoff race, if not wild card contenders. The the homegrown pitching movement is going to be incredibly important to sustain success. I agree. I think that's kind of their what what they're going to need to be able to uh, marshal to counteract what else is going on in their division. Uh, the Mariners, uh, the butt of the joke there for such a long time. Uh, came very close to making the playoffs this year. They've got exciting young players already on their roster. They've got uh, they've got prospects who uh, we're going to get into in just a few short minutes who project to be very uh, loud and toolsy uh, and, and and exciting major leaguers. Um, and so I think that's they really kind of fucked themselves over by getting these draft penalties uh, because I think that that's kind of where that's kind of where they they were going to have to need to look to kind of just like reinforce. Uh, their farm system, their player development, getting you know guys towards the top of the draft who can you know move through the system quickly and and, and start to contribute in the ways that they did with obviously you know you can't compare like them directly to Bregg because he was a number two overall guy but you know kind of like a a, a a light version of that is what they really could have used. Now Sam, I feel like we have to switch it up a little bit because that was such a great segue you made of the Seattle Mariners. We normally go in an alphabetical order. Uh, we gotta we gotta change it up. We just have to. Let's get it, as the kids say. Here we say. go. As the kids say, Seattle Mariners, starting at number 10, right-handed pitcher Andres Munoz. You should know him from San Diego. Came down in the Austin Nola trade. He did pretty well in 2019, has an 80-grade fastball. His 2020 was wiped away due to Tommy John surgery. Bullpen in 21, 
Baseball America believes he could be the closer of the future. And Seattle has had a relatively stable presence in that bullpen. Edwin Diaz was peak Edwin Diaz just a few years ago. So they'd like to have a changing of the guard that is positive because it's been, they've plugged a lot of guys in. Anthony Bass, maybe the most successful one there. So I'm sure they'd like some more stability. Yeah, and I think that Rafael Montero uh, was a nice acquisition for them, the closer for the Rangers this past year. Uh, he should provide some continued stability, but I think long-term, you got to love a guy like Munoz. Matt, 103 miles an hour. He can throw a baseball that fast. That's a very large number, is it not? It is a very large number indeed. I hope he could stick with that velocity post-surgery. And obviously control is a bit of an issue here, but anytime you have gas like that, if you're a team, you have to take a chance on it. At number nine, Juan Venn. Bit shocking to see his name here. The Yankees had him. Well, the, the, he was originally a Mariner, was shipped over to the Bronx, and then came back to Seattle in the Edwin Encarnacion trade. And Encarnacion was fine. Hit a lot of home runs here. But it's shocking to see this because he was a low-level prospect in New York system. And it seems like he's bolstered up and is now a relatively fairly important name in the system. Yeah, and uh, with uh, two decent uh, secondary pitches along with a mid to upper 90s fastball, obviously you have to see how he does against more advanced competition. But uh, this guy looks like a potential uh, name to throw in there competing for, uh, for, for a spot in this rotation in a couple of years. Obviously you hope that guys like Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn can entrench themselves. But, you know, there, there are veteran guys in there who we don't know if they're going to be around in 2023, 2024. That could be Juan Then's time. Next two guys, catcher Cal Raleigh, third-round pick in 2018 out of Florida State. Power, power, power. Some of the best pop out of any catcher in any minor league system that we've profiled so far. Going to be in AAA in 2021. And at number seven, George Kirby, first-round pick out of Elon University. Not exactly a hotbed for baseball talent. Good to see them on the map. A velocity uptick with some already dazzling control. That was his calling card getting selected so high. Breakout contender in 2021. You know, the thing about George Kirby, uh, you say not exactly from a baseball hotbed. He's a New Yorker originally from Rye. Wow. Uh, Westchester, West, West, Westchester County, uh, same town that former Yankee Paul O'Neill made his home in. Yeah, so the thing with Kirby uh, that really sticks out to me is uh, this is 70-grade control for a guy who was you know, pitching in college a little less than two years ago. That, to me, is something uh, remarkable. It stands out. We don't see uh, numbers anywhere near that high, usually, when it comes to uh, young pitchers like that. And so, given the, the improvements he's been making, you know, bumping his velocity up, you know, he's got the slider uh, as another potential plus offering. This is a really exciting package they have, and they've been making some really nice moves in terms of drafting uh, drafting their pitchers, uh, as I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get into with a couple more guys on this list. Now, the Mariners have been rather famously horrific for the last two decades. This prospect list coming down six through one makes it seem like they're going to be having some upward momentum that doesn't end on the last weekend in September with 86 wins. Dare I say they can eventually start challenging for some divisions? Not yet, but I think they have a lot of what it takes. Number six, outfielder Taylor Trammell. Right now is well traveled because he's gone from Cincy to San Diego and now to the city of grunge. Way too yeah. hit and miss right now, just being honest here. Yeah, I think that obviously you love him as, as an athlete, as uh, someone who can run solid routes, but some really disappointing uh, performance at the plate, uh, his first taste of double A. Granted, uh, you would love to see him get a second try at that level, but obviously the 2020 season wiped out. And so all we have is basically uh, you know him hitting the low 230s there uh, in, in 2019. 
And uh, one thing that does kind of concern me is, uh, you know, some questions about arm strength. I think that uh, if if that gets in the way of, of him staying in center field, he doesn't have the power to profile in a corner. And so, you know, I hate to rate him off this quickly. Uh, we'll see uh, how he can adjust once he returns to live game action. But this could be a fourth outfielder type ceiling. Given the benefit of the doubt, you know, we hear good things about uh, – about, about, about his work ethic and uh, the kind of uh, way he attacks his, his craft. But uh, I think the deck's stacked against him. Now a trio of budding quality players. Starting at number five, shortstop Noel V. Marte, a potential all-star at such a young age. They're giving him this, they're anointing him with his crown at just 20, turning 21. Whether it's at shortstop or somewhere else in the infield, may not be able to stick around at the position. Could be a Kyle Seager era parent if we even are thinking that far in the future. And then these two pitchers, Emerson Hancock, first-round pick out of Georgia, zoomed up draft boards. The Mariners believe he could be a fast riser. We'll be beginning at high A next year, possible promotion to double A as well. And number three, Logan Gilbert, first-round pick from Stetson. Of course, the alma mater of Jacob deGrom. Right now has two-plus pitches, a fastball and changeup, and one above-average pitch, a 55-grade slider. Future ace, if he gets to stay in this over a full season, they got to like what they have on the pitching side in addition to the two outfielders that we're going to be talking about. These are really interesting players and I'll wonder whether or not these are someone else's uh, kids that were put on on a Mariners list by accident. Noel V. Marte absolutely top uh, the Dominican League at uh, only age 17. 883 OPS, you know, 54 RBIs in, uh, in uh, 65 games, pretty solid. He will need to cut down on his strikeouts once he comes stateside, and that's also the big thing is he hasn't played an inning of uh, professional ball in a, in, in a domestic league. But uh, he is he's he's ranked where he is for a reason. The tools are very loud. Uh, Hancock is a guy where uh, he was potentially getting uh, some buzz around uh, you know number one overall very early in the draft process. Um, obviously, uh, the start of uh, the abbreviated collegiate season. Kind of knocked him down a peg, but outstanding value for the Mariners here. Uh, potential, you know, mid to top of the rotation guy. Obviously, you love seeing him come from a, a, a program such as Georgia that's known uh, for developing uh, very good players. Logan Gilbert, a uh, bit of an ignominious start to his pro career. He had mono that summer, actually, which yikes. What a summer it was for him. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of size and just how well he's able to mix his pitches with good control as well. I agree with you, Matt. Even if Justice Sheffield reaches his full potential, I think this is your number one guy right here in Logan Gilbert. Now, if you're a Mets fan, and I'm sure some of you are because I live in the Long Island area, there are a bunch of Mets fans here, stop listening right now because we're going to talk about something that you're not going to like. Jared Kelnick, first-round pick, has done nothing but hit. Of course, he was shipped off in the Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano trade. Just ignore that name. And it's looking like this is going to be a win for Seattle. Just continues to rake future all-star with an elite hit tool. Wow, this could be a misfire for Brody Van Wagner when all is said and done. And at number one, Julio Rodriguez, a man-child is how he's described in the scouting report. So we need to see another large adult son in the major leagues. Confidence and personality to be a marketable star for the game if he reaches his ceiling. A slight chance... Even in a fairly decent outfield, he could be up at the end of the year. The face of the Mariners of the decade is not something that will be taken lightly, but it seems like the writers and the scouts are all in on this pair. You know, I hate to come out with such a big proclamation, but, you know, we do hot takes all the time on this show. If you're telling me that they have 
an outfield lined up for the future. That's Jared Kelenic at left, Kyle Lewis reigning rookie of the year in center, and then Julio Rodriguez in right. I would say that's that's competing with any outfield that has Mike Trout in it for the best in the division. One hundred. Yeah, we have we have we have Angels guys. We'll get to you know they have their own highly touted prospects. I think both their top two are outfielders who are kind of either already debuted or at the cusp of of debuting, but. I think just um, the, the consistency across the board that's projected uh, for these three. This is this is this, this is the core of a team being unearthed and being you know being showcased right here. And it's not something that Seattle's really seen in many years. Obviously, they had uh, their closest uh, brush with uh, eliteness in the '90s. You know, when you had Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, folks like that, a lot of, a lot of whom were uh, before we were born. You know, but there's really been nothing quite like that ever since. And I don't think it's fair to compare these guys to franchise legends yet at this point in time. But the influx of talent, it's something that's going to be very welcome uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, something that they've been missing for a long time. I think they're going to be around 500 next year. I, I think it's time. They almost made the playoffs last year. Hell, I know they were horrific in 2019, but they did start 11 and one. So there is some sort of talent there. It's got to be sustained. And honestly, like who who is the clear favorite for this division? It's Oakland, right? Yeah. Beyond them, I think it's going to be an absolute madhouse. You know, Houston, they had their they had their great postseason run. They've got their intriguing young pitchers, but they lost a lot of uh, a lot of key guys there. A lot of question marks as they fill those holes. Uh, The Angels just seems like the um, hole is always lesser than the sum of the parts for some reason. And then Texas is just off doing their own thing. So there's an opening for the Mariners here, and I'll be really curious to see if they can take advantage and maybe sneak into one of those wild card spots. It'd be really interesting for me personally if they're just to see like a, a Rays Mariners matchup to kick off the postseason in 2021 that's How a great that idea I would love that I really would now for this team whose hole is always lesser than its parts the Los Angeles Angels of course they have the anointed one Mr. Mike Trout best player of our generation maybe he's getting some help at the top of this list he needs it desperately we'll start with a pair of infielders though at number 10 Kieran Paris, second-round pick from California, just turned 19, one of the youngest players at the alternate site, the Angels' youngest player at the alternate site, one of the youngest in the entire league. Pretty solid, even showed some power, some 15 home run potential. Should be at the rookie level, chance to stick at shortstop. And at second base, Jamai Jones, uh, a Georgia high school product from 2015. Only seven MLB at-bats, but three hits. Athletic and fast, actually a converted outfielder. Going to stick at the Keystone for now. Future utility player who could line up nearly everywhere. And that includes all three outfield spots if you ever needed to go back there. He will return to the big leagues. Very, very limited sample size. They have to like what they saw, though. Yeah, and I think that uh, especially given how he uh, kind of toiled in the minors for quite some time, you know, 2015 draft pick took him five years to debut. Versatility is increasingly becoming the name of the game. When we've been talking, Matt, about, you know, these successful teams, you know, the Dodgers is the prime example. Uh, The Rays, even though they're built differently, they both employ versatile players who can be shifted from position to position without really losing a step. That's the kind of uh, guy you need on your roster, especially if you're the Angels and you want to finally make that postseason run that is owed to Mike Trout. And I think with a guy like uh, Jemai Jones, that especially comes in handy when you have someone like like David Fletcher, who's kind of played that utility role. I think he's primed to step into an everyday role, uh, leaving a vacuum for someone who can come in and be that super sub, can fill in all around the diamond. And so I think that this was a very positive development. And you know, from what we've heard about his continued improvements to his batsmanship over the course of the fall, Uh, I think good things are on the horizon for him. At number nine and number seven, a pair of project pitchers that are still a ways away. 
Hector Jan from the Dominican Republic had a breakout 2019 and then ended up putting him in summer camp. And he looked pretty well. He's got a funky delivery. That said, control doesn't really exist at the moment. So unless he could develop that, that's a future reliever in the making because his stuff is there. And at number seven, you're going to have to help me out here for sure. Jack Koshanowitz, I believe is how you're pronouncing it. I think either that or Koshanowitz. Whatever the case, Mr. Jack K, no professional innings yet, was drafted in the third round of 2019. One plus pitch right now with the potential of a second mid-rotation guy if that could work out. And that's something the Angels desperately need. Just sturdy, stable presences and an incredibly banged up rotation. Yeah, Matt, you really love hearing about the curveball that early in his development, but you know, especially for such a big guy, he needs time to grow into his body. I can imagine that you know, there's a, a little bit more muscle he could put on. Uh, he's going to be quite a ways away. Just based off of what we've read, he seems like the type of player who they're going to take a slow and steady approach with. At number six, Jeremiah Jackson broke into the league in 2018, hit 23 home runs in the Pioneer League, a record in a very short amount of time. That being said, lots of strikeouts and suffered an oblique injury at summer camp this year. Not many middle infielders have his power potential, though, so they're going to have to stick with him for as long as they can. Just real real quick, a bit of trivia there. Uh, he's a native of Mobile, Alabama, which uh, was the Angels' double-A affiliate for a long time, but uh, they, they moved up north to, uh, to Huntsville, so he will no longer get a chance to play for his hometown team if he makes double-A. And at number five, Jordan Adams, first round pick, 80 grade runner. He's so fast, he even outran some balls in the gaps, which is quite impressive, where he was just, he got past everything. Swing development is important, but we're going to have to be honest here. If that doesn't work, I don't think it's going to matter. The Terrence Gore and Quinton Berry role exists for a reason. He could easily be a September call up if he's as fast as advertised. Yeah, and I think that's um, just being able to work on his defense. That's just crazy reading that thing about him, you know, being too fast, you know, to, to, to get to balls. That that strikes me as something that has to be correctable with, with solid coaching in the instruction. Without a doubt, yeah. Right, and I think, you know, it goes, it goes to show, I first heard of Jordan Adams. I follow college football recruiting as well. This guy was supposed to be UNC's next great wide receiver. He goes pro in, in, in baseball instead, and here we are. Just that sort of raw athletic ability you don't, see ever really it's you know 80 grade running is just it's the rarest of rare um and i think that even though you you have trout already you have guys like brandon marsh and joe adele whom we're going to talk about shortly but someone who can provide this kind of athletic spark in center field you have to keep an eye on you have to find ways to work him in i think like even above the the, the terrence score role you can throw him you know as as a defensive replacement in the late innings you don't have to just use him solely as a pinch runner so long as he catches the balls and doesn't go past them, I can see that working as well. Number Here's four, number thing. three. Yeah, you know. Number four, number three, Reed Detmers, their first-round pick this year out of Louisville, called the prototypical archetype college lefty. Mid-rotation potential, just does a lot of things well. Nothing too off the charts, just a jack-of-all-trades, really. And at number three, Chris Rodriguez, fourth-round pick from 2016, returned from major back issues that derailed two consecutive seasons but he has a four-pitch mix, including a 70-grade fastball. If he stays healthy, they may have an ace on their hands, but the back is one injury a a pitcher really doesn't want, maybe less so than an elbow or a shoulder. Two straight years, that's certainly got to be concerning. And especially given his youth, you know, when I think of major league players with back issues, you know, my image is of some, you know, weathered reliever in his mid to late 30s who's 
been through the grind of a long major league career and, you know, his brittle body is starting to fail him. To be 22-23 the way Chris Rodriguez is and to already have that as a red flag, uh, they're going to have to be really careful with him. I can see him being someone who is on innings limitations, pitch pitch counts, and, you know, my worry is that might impede his development, even though he's got uh, he's got such amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, he looked like he was kind of starting to put things together at the start of spring training this uh, this past season. There are a lot of question marks there, and they're going to have to they're going to have to handle him with a lot of care. And now for these final two guys, the outfielders you mentioned before, Brandon Marsh, way too injury prone, actually had a fast track to a call up, had the pandemic not shut down spring training, but he hurt his elbow and that put him out for a while and he couldn't come up at any point during the season. He missed some of summer camp and some of the alternate site due to undisclosed reasons, COVID or otherwise, he just wasn't there, didn't show up. Another guy with all the potential in the world to give the Angels cheap talent in the outfield and give Trout a weapon needs to stick around and be healthy to find out. And number one, Joe Adele. Honestly surprised he still has his eligibility because he played a lot of at-bats. Unfortunately, negative 1.3 wins above replacement at some points just wasn't working out. He was called up in Justin Upton's wake after Upton was struggling and couldn't really do much with it. There was more bad than good. His inexperience showed. I think that has a lot to do with not playing in the upper minors that much prior to this season. You should still keep the faith because there have been plenty of guys who have struggled in their first piece of work to end up being totally fine. Adele could certainly be one of those guys. Yeah, I think that the comparison to be made is with the guy we talked about last week, Dylan Carlson for the St. Louis Cardinals, who looked absolutely lost upon uh, his 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 first promotion this past summer. Carlson, as we mentioned, uh, had to go back down to the alternate training site and didn't really start to look like he was at home in that Cardinals outfield until his second call-up. And I think that for a guy like Adele, who had really minimal seasoning at the AAA level, maybe just a cup of coffee in 2019, he just needs more more game reps to build his confidence there. You know, the tools are outstanding. And I have to imagine that there's just some heebie-jeebies that need to be worked out. And granted, he hasn't shown a ton in the majors yet. Brandon Marsh hasn't played in a game above double A. But, you know, Adele Trout Marsh, that's still that's still pretty good, I gotta say. And I'm, I'm underselling it there. You put Trout there and it just starts you off with an automatic win. You just need these guys to develop to even be average, and that should be a great outfield. He did so much with Cole Calhoun, who was decent. Justin Upton, who was declined, but was still had a pretty couple good seasons. It's Trout's outfield, and supplanting with talent is really all that matters. The Angels really need to get it done. One thing that's interesting that, I, that I'm just picking up on is that Brandon Marsh has taken some ground balls at first base before in uh, especially starting at the alternate training set. So I know Jared Walsh has emerged there, kind of coming out of nowhere, not a super highly touted prospect. Um, if they move Marsh to first and uh, Jared Walsh to DH, uh, that gives them a, a little bit more flexibility if they end up deciding they want to make a splash on the trade market this summer or, you know, in free agency next winter. So just an, an, another interesting wrinkle. Good to know that, you know, these guys have options. Now for these division favorites, the Oakland Athletics. To me, they're always going to be scrappy and underrated. We shouldn't be thinking of them that way anymore. Three consecutive years of playoffs, not that they've done much with it, but they won 90 games in 2018 and 19, 90 plus. And looked solid last year. So they're here for the long haul. And Moneyball is starting to work out and permeate its way to the top level again. Number 10, James Caprillion. With all due respect, Mr. Caprillion, I am very surprised to see you still here. An ex-Yankees pick uh, was involved in the Sonny Gray trade way back in 2017. He was out for two entire seasons recovering from Tommy John surgery. He didn't do much when he was called up, but it is a feel-good story. 
I'd say there are long-term health concerns though. Yeah. Um, I was surprised as well. We talk about, you know, it was, it's been weird to see guys, you know, who drafted in like 2014, 2015, 2016 on these lists still. Uh, he was a Yankees first rounder in 2015, but collegiate first rounder. So he's, uh, he's, he's very there. old. He, uh, co- coincidentally, uh, he and I have the same birthday, but he's two years older than I am. So that's a really nice contrast to having to look through uh, other lists and seeing 2003 birth years and like, it's just weird. I don't, and you I never don't had Tommy John surgery. So if they needed to put you up in a pinch, you could do it. I could. I think that's, uh, Oakland has tended to have a pretty, you know, revolving door bullpen. I guess that's kind of a holdover of, you know, the whole money ball shtick is that they're not afraid to mix and match and throw in, you know, whomever's hot, you know, a lot of guys, you know, going up and down from the majors to AAA and back, you know, I don't see him being like a, a lights out setup guy or anything, but there's still a good chance that if he stays healthy, he can, he can provide some solid innings. A lot of position players at the bottom of this list. We'll start at number nine, outfielder Greg Geekman, second round pick from LSU, banged up in the past. He's now on the 40 man roster. He's going to be in the Mark Reynolds mold, low average, a lot of power, a lot of strikeouts. If you want to make a local comparison, he's going to be like Jack Cust. So that's serviceable, I suppose, in the era of three true outcomes. If he works on the walks, he's going to be none worse for it. Number eight, Jonah Heim, catcher. You want to talk about older players. Drafted in 2013. Traded twice. Seven years ago, he was selected, and he's been involved in professional baseball ever since. Now he's Sean Murphy's backup. Solid ceiling. People believe he could be starting somewhere, and he's not going to get that chance behind Murphy, unfortunately, because Murphy's been so great. Number seven, outfielder Luis Barrera, knocking down the door in Oakland. He had a great summer camp, hit 450, and the A's think he could force himself into the mix with a solid spring. So, yeah, I think uh, for a guy like Barrera, really someone they developed quite slowly. He spent two summers in the Dominican League. He spent really a year and a half at each Class A level. But it seems like bringing him along slowly has has really paid off. Not a ton of power. He's never hit for more than... uh, I want to say seven home runs in a season, even in the minor leagues. But I think that's um, if you can, you know, give them some solid con- uh, solid contact, you know, line drive hitting, he runs his routes well. Uh, this is an A's team where, you know, they, they love their outfield platoons. You know, we've talked a lot about Robbie Grossman, their recently departed uh, part-time left fielder. And it seems like Barrera could very much fit into that role going forward. Let's talk about a pair of shortstops who are glove first at the moment and are looking to replace a guy who has provided some solid options for them for the last few seasons. Nick Allen at number six, third round pick in 2017. Gold Glover in training, just needs to hit a little better. And then his counterpart, Logan Davidson, first round pick out of Clemson. Maybe a tick ahead of Allen on this list. Questions remain about if he could stick at the position. Now, I'm not saying either of these guys are going to replace Marcus Simeon, but Simeon was known for his glove, especially post-2016. I think if there's somebody they need to plug in, if one of these guys develops with the bat, he could be the one. You're not going to get Marcus Simeon's eight wins of our replacement, but you're at least going to get some solid defense down the line. Yeah, I think that especially uh, if you're looking for that, Allen's grading out at 70 already. He's getting some David Fletcher comparisons, not just in terms of coming in at shortstop, but having that kind of super utility status where, like David Fletcher, you can you know hit it at an above average clip for the major leagues. Uh, that's a real coup. You know, the one interesting thing about Logan Davidson is that he was uh, he was an amazing college player, but there were always some potential red flags insofar as when he was in the Cape Cod League and you're playing with wood bats, his production always dropped off. So it doesn't look like he's completely cratered as a professional. Um, but the bat's really never going to be his calling card much. And it seems like uh, Allen probably has the upper hand when it comes to uh, 
the ability to perform defensively. But um, as you said, it's really going to be up to whichever one of these guys wants it more, whoever's putting in the most work when, when spring training time comes around. Allen, I would say just by virtue of having more minor league seasoning is much closer. Allen's going to probably start in double A, whereas Davidson, you know, he has never gone beyond sh- the short season league. So my guess is Allen is vastly more likely to see uh, a major league lineup in 2021, uh, but definitely uh, a good uh, friendly competition within the system going forward. Now, Matt, this next guy on the list, are you a fan of Fight Club, the movie? You know, I haven't seen it all. I watched it in school, believe it or not, but my friend told me the twist thinking that I had seen it. So I, it's all just spoiled for me. We hate to see that. Well, what I have to say about this next guy, his name was Robert Poisson. Robert. His name was Robert Poisson. <laughs> <laughs> see, I got that. That I knew. Enough of it. I, that, was ju- that, was, that was juvenile of me, but I'm also not apologizing for it. <laughs> As you should not. Robert Poisson. These previous two guys may just be keeping the seat warm for him in due time. $5.1 million bonus in 2019. That was tied with Jason Dominguez for the highest in the entire class. He's going to be making his pro debut. Scouts are very high on him. He is toolsy as the day is long. Yeah, and in terms of, you know, adding some interesting color, taking English classes at ASU, to me, obviously, like everyone approaches these things at their own pace. And, you know, it's, it's a difficult adjustment for anyone who signed out of a Latin American country uh, and, and coming to the United States to play baseball. But to me, like, that's just like, that, that, that adds something extra in terms of, you know, demonstrating his makeup. That shows to me, like, you know, this is a guy who's going to have, you know, leadership qualities as he's coming up, you know, throughout the pipeline. And, you know, as you've said, the tools are there in my opinion, very high likelihood of sticking at the position in the long term. Uh, it could, yeah, a few years from now, it could be him at short and, and Nick Allen having to come in and play second base every other day. At number three, Dalton Jeffries, a first round pick in 2016, in the mix for a rotation spot, and he has an impressive changeup. So he's going to be added to my mental note of people to watch on Pitching Ninja if he could stick around and earn a spot out of camp or shortly thereafter. Number two, the more notable name here, AJ Puck, stellar at the University of Florida has been injured constantly. At first, the Tommy John surgery that knocked out a lot of his time developing in 2018 and 2019. Returned in 2019 in the bullpen role. Looked pretty good. Had to shut down due to some shoulder issues this year. Ultimately had surgery. He will be ready for spring training. You can't give up on him yet. These are some very concerning developments. And it looks like with the Jesus Lizard graduated from this list, they don't want Puck to bust out. And he's got the talent to do so. You need to keep him on the field. Yeah, I mean, a guy of his size, your big six, seven lefty who's you know able to hit triple digits. Those don't exactly grow on trees, and so I think that they're going to be giving him every chance that they can, while also you know factoring in his his health and his durability. Whereas you get kind of the opposite approach with Dalton Jeffries, who's you know much smaller, sits lower in the nineties, but. Jeffries is another one of those 70 grade control guys, which, you know, I think bodes very well for his future, even if he doesn't make the rotation as, you know, kind of being one of those, those bullpen arms that uh, Oakland is, is known to cultivate. And at number one, catcher Tyler Soderstrom, this year's first round pick, the A's pulled a Spencer Torkelson to Detroit move, immediately sent Soderstrom to the alternate site. And he was really raking, hit 500 with three home runs in his first week there. Now, he's been compared to two names highly regarded out of high school. The good, the ceiling, Eric Chavez. The bad, Ben Grieve. There are two different planes on this one. So they're hoping he's more like the former than the latter. He's going to quickly jump through the system. If he has to, he can move into a corner infield spot if catcher's not for him. And I can think of a guy who did that that wasn't exactly Oakland homegrown, but 
went from catcher to third and had himself quite a career. Yeah, um, I think that uh, given the power potential he has, you have to find a place for him in your lineup somewhere. Uh, one thing that does kind of stick out in my mind is whether or not first base ends up being a spot. You know, By the time he uh, is likely to, to debut, Matt Olson would be pushing 30. I don't mean to write him out of, of the A's lineup because he's been one of their most solid power hitters the past couple of years. But, you know, you never know how much longer that's going to last. You know, there's been great things said about Soderstrom's work ethic. He's, you know, second generation pro baseball player. It's obviously in his blood. But one thing that does stick in my mind is he, he has quite a bit of ground to make up in terms of learning the defensive in and outs of, of the catcher position. And so I think my, my eye is on that first base role going forward for him. I'm just working under the assumption that Chapman and or Olsen will be traded at some point because that's just what the A's do. So it's going to be yeah, a new look out. team. Definitely. New look team within a few years. They're a team much like the Cardinals, but for different reasons who needs to develop prospects. St. Louis doesn't bring anybody in. Oakland just shifts people out. So you need to be stocked and replenished consistently. And now the last team in this AL West, the Texas Rangers, we're not quite sure what they're doing. Chris Young has a lot of work to do. He's going to be given the opportunity for sure. We will start at number 10. Shortstop Anderson Tejada actually made his debut. Now, I'm not going to say I was a bad fan this year, but the games were not the same for me. I don't think I watched a second of the Texas Rangers. New ballpark, I understand. They were just not an interesting team. I apologize. Anderson Tejada didn't realize how many at-bats he had. I knew he debuted, but actually filled in for Elvis Andrews for quite a bit of time. Recently transformed into a switch hitter. He's pulling a reverse Shane Victorino. Great defense. Some questions about the bat. Houston, we have a problem with Mr. Tejeda. Two walks, 30 strikeouts. Yeah, that counts as a problem, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in, in terms of hitting for average, you know, small sample size, but like 253, that's like all right for a, a shortstop making his debut. That lack of discipline, doesn't, to me, does not scream a long-term answer. I mean, even in the lower minors, you know, some of the, some of the numbers and the ratios uh, here are just absolutely outrageous. Another two shortstops that we will talk about, number eight, Luis Angel Acuna from Venezuela. We might know his brother. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Ronald. He's on the Braves. Vaguely familiar. Okay. So this guy, five foot eight, 181 pounds, but he is crushing the ball. Ronald is saying that his brother was better than he ever was at the age of 18. So that is lofty praise. I'm sure it's all in the family and he's just trying to be supportive, but his bat is too loud not to join the big league ranks. And another exceptional name from Venezuela, Maximo Acosta, shortstop. Getting Glaber Torres comparisons for his ability to hit for power, that's a, that's a bit much right there. Hasn't even made his pro debut, but his eye is exceptional, and he has 25 home run potential. So guys, further down the pipeline, if Anderson Tejada is not the guy to replace Elvis Andrews. Yeah, one thing also worth mentioning with Little Acuna is uh, he's getting reps uh, across the infield. So the Rangers, uh, they could have an eye on him as a possible super utility guy. I think it would be great if they can get someone whose power is two-thirds of what Rugnet Odor's is, but is able to actually hit above the Mendoza line across the length of a, of a major league season. That would be a revelation compared to what they're used to. At number nine, right-handed pitcher Hans Kraus. I got a text from Sam rather late at night, and it said, Hans Kraus has a neck tattoo. I was like, ah, I like this. I like this no context thing. And I had to look, <laughs> and it, there it was. Didn't participate in summer camp, which is unfortunate because his stuff has been electric since his debut. 
If he's healthy, he's a mid-rotation starter. He has dealt with some issues there. You know, and one thing, not to hype too much on the friggin' neck tattoo. Um, <laughs> obvious, obvious, obviously, he's got the stuff to potentially be a, a starter in the major leagues. One thing that's been written about him is that he has a personality on the map. Uh, and I think that, you know, in terms of uh, where the game's going, where you're seeing this movement of major leaguers showing more emotion on the field than they ever had, celebrating strikeouts. Uh, doing bat flips after home runs, you know, clapping and cheering and ah, and all that. It's just interesting to to think of prospects and people in the minor leagues coming up the pipeline as people who could potentially, you know, keep that that sort of excitement and and fan engagement. Uh, I have no doubt that he would be a very fun guy to watch pitch. At. Is is it still Globe Life Field? It's Globe Life Park now. Well, fuck me, Globe yeah. Life. He'd be a he'd be a fun guy to watch pitch at, at Globe Life Park. <laughs> yeah, branding rights are fun. Number six, second baseman Justin Foscue, this year's first round pick. Offensive oriented second baseman. We've heard of that in Texas before. He can honestly make his debut in double A. His defense needs major work. So that's not great considering second baseman is arguably the easiest to play when comparing third and short. So we don't like to see that. Maybe he works in the outfield. Maybe he's just a perpetual DH. I don't know what the move is here if he's not yeah. mastering that part. Honestly, I'm getting a lot of Willie Calhoun with a little less power vibes, which is not a great place to be in. But he was a first-round pick for a reason. I had a great college career for Mississippi State. And so as long as the bat's working, I have no doubt they'll continue to move him up. At number four, Cole Wynn, first-round pick as well, this time in 2018. Did very well at the alternate training site, but he still has a lot left in his developmental arsenal. Once he checks his boxes off, he could be a mid-rotation starter, something the Rangers could always use. And number four, you may have heard of this guy as well, Dane Dunning already slotting into that number four role was traded for Lance Lynn just a few weeks ago. In this patchwork rotation, he's likely going to stick around for good. Yeah, not just that, but he probably has uh, one of the better, like I'm more optimistic about him than I am Kyle Gibson. That's for damn sure. Definitely. He is already the best pitcher in this system and he's only been here for like 30 days. Yeah, uh, and I think that's, uh, this was like really solid value for them to extract from from Lance Lynn. Obviously, you know, they knew he was gone and to be able to get someone who can, can contribute at a major league level and, and fill in that gap while still being under team control for quite some time. Uh, that was a nice coup. Was Chris Young in charge at this point or was this still the old regime? This was Chris Young's first move, I believe. Good for him. Yeah. Putting that Princeton degree to good use. Now a couple guys the Rangers I'm sure are happy about, but the toothpaste is out of the tube. I don't know if you could stick them back down in AAA. Number three, outfielder Leone Tavares only played 33 games, but had 1.3 wins above replacement. So he was solid. His bat wasn't even spectacular. It was average at best. His fielding and glove work and base running are really his calling cards. I don't know if he's an everyday center fielder, but he put up way too much value to be just derided and excluded. If he's down in AAA, it's not going to be for very long. He'll be up at the first injury. And at number two, catcher Sam Huff, arguably the more impressive one of the two. He was the MVP of the All-Star Futures game. Great in a limited major league sample as well. Came up, kicked ass immediately for a dreadful Texas team. He could tandem with Jose Trevino, but again, toothpaste out of tube. You got to put Huff in there and eventually get him his reps. Yeah, I think both of these guys, if I'm Chris Woodward or in my, or in my opening day starting lineup, Tavares, um, I think you, you chalk it up to him just facing major league pitching for the first time. Uh, he's a better hitter than what he showed. Uh, the, the approach will improve with time. And he uh, wasn't even bad. Um, he was just right. totally okay. 
exactly. Now, apparently he he's in the 94th percentile in terms of foot speed, according to StatCast. You can't keep that on the bench. You can't put that back in AAA. And the thing with Huff is he's clearly a bat first guy. And with that power, uh, there's a lot to like. Uh, one development that uh, I think is absolutely key is longtime Major League backup catcher, a former Ranger, Bobby Wilson, uh, was a minor league manager and coach for a while. Now he's on the Major League staff as their catching instructor. So I think if you can just lock the two of them in a room, masked of course <laughs> um <laughs> and you know just give give him as much one-on-one time with you know the finer points of of what he needs to to know in order to be able to call a, a major league average game uh, i think that you can kind of get away with him not being an elite defender uh, if he's able to bring that 70 grade power and employ that consistently over the course of a season last but certainly not least josh jung first round pick from texas tech so a hometown fella could be the power threat they've been lacking for the last few years. Now, Ranger third baseman with power, my mind goes to Hank Blaylock, so I'd like to see that. He's the reason Isaiah Kainer-Falefa moved to shortstop, because they wanted to keep this for Jung, and Andrews is very clearly slowing down. The Rangers are starting to build something, especially on the position player side. For the last few seasons, even when they won the AL West in 2016, they were playing way above their heads, and they regressed immediately, got destroyed by Toronto. The last three seasons, seven, eight, nine, they were in the fringes of the race before bottoming out. Last year, they just dropped off the table completely. I don't think they're a playoff team, but if they have these bats up, they're going to compete with any offense in the American League. Yeah, and I think that um, if there's a resurgence in Dallas, Josh Young is going to be a major part of it. It is really interesting seeing just the raves that scouts are making about his progress this past year. Uh, this is a guy who hit one home run across an entire full season in Class A in 2019. And, you know, now people are, are saying that he could be, you know, a, a 20 to 30 homer a year hitter in the majors after uh, the work he's put in, the alternate training site, you know, instructional league and all that. I think Hank Blelock is a decent cop because I don't necessarily see Young being like Arenado level perennial all-star perennial MVP candidate. But, you know, if you're Texas, you have been thirsting for these just solid everyday regulars that you can plug in. And I think that provided Young is able to keep developing, he would fit into that role quite nicely. Sam, five divisions are complete. One more remains. The National League West. Can't believe we're already here. We're getting closer and closer to what could be a rather normal spring. I don't want to jinx it, but uh, this is, you know, this is this this is giving me uh, flashbacks to when we'd be wrapping up talking about prospects. We'd be back in the studio at WNYU and you know counting down to when the trucks would be leaving. You know, there's really something uh, there's really something quite magical about the uh, impending nature of uh, of a nearby baseball season. And so we hope that things keep uh, getting better in the world. You know, both for baseball's sake and for you know everyone's sake. And Matt, pleasure as always. Can't wait to meet you again next week. We're on the far. Sam Shapiro, Matt Kovitz. Have a great week, everybody.